Good morning, church. Well, if you would please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We are in week two of our series on the Lord's Prayer. And if you missed last week, I encourage you to go and check that out. You can find it in our YouTube channel or uh, on our website. And Robbie did a great job of kicking off this series as we look at the Lord's Prayer. Last week, Robbie talked about our Father in heaven. And this morning, we will be focusing on the second part of that verse, hallowed be your name. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning as we come before you. Help us, God, to understand even the simplicity of this prayer. There is so much complexity. There's so much depth and richness. God, I pray that we would be able to wade into those waters and that you would give us a big picture of who you are. That you would stir our hearts to praise you, and to desire that your name would be praised in all the earth. Amen. So this phrase, hallowed be your name, what does that even mean? I mean, last week when we talked about our Father in heaven, those are words that we use a lot and and understand, and though uh, we don't always understand the depth of them, we at least can have a surface understanding. But hallowed be your name is not a phrase that we use a whole lot. But I think a lot of us understand that, it, that hallowed, to be hallowed means to be revered or to be made holy, to set apart in your mind as holy. And so it, in short, we often just define it as it means to praise God. Hallowed be your name means to, to praise the Lord. And it, and it certainly does mean that, but it's much more than that. I love how John Piper puts it. He says, see, see to it that your name is hallowed. Use your infinite power and wisdom and, and love to stir up billions of hearts and minds to admire you and prize you above all things. So I want us to understand that hallowed be your name is not just about my personal praise of God. It's not just that I would say, God, I want to hallow your name. I want to praise your name. It is a a request made of God to let his name be praised among all of creation. And this phrase should soak all of our prayers. At their core, it is for God's glory that we ask all things. Notice how many times in scripture the author asks God to do something for his own namesake. Like once you start to see this, you, you see it everywhere. Jeremiah 14, 21 says, Do not spurn us for your namesake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. Look at what grounds does Jeremiah make his appeal? It's that God's name not be dishonored. It's for his namesake. Or Psalm 23, probably the most famous psalm there is. In verse 3, it says, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. For what? For his namesake. What does David think God's motivation for the restoration of your soul is? His namesake. And even in Matthew 19, this is all through scripture, all through the Psalms. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake, will receive a hundredfold 
and will inherit eternal life. It's for his name's sake. And so whatever you do, it is, it is this idea of praying to God and praising him and saying, God, whatever you do, whatever I ask you to do, however I ask you to move, what I desire more than anything is all of creation to praise your name. See that your name be hallowed, no matter what. Hallowed be your name. That is the prayer. That everything would glorify God and lift him up as the most worthy treasure. Not just I praise you, but let your name be praised to the ends of the earth. So notice what this first verse is doing. Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, starting by saying, Our Father, our Father in heaven, who who is far beyond what we could ever imagine, who resides on a different plane than us, let your name be praised in all the earth. What is it doing? It's reorienting our hearts to God. Because our hearts need to be reoriented. Think about it. When you go to prayer, what drives you to prayer? What instigates it? I mean, typically, it's something that is going on in our lives. We're most often driven to prayer because of some trial we are facing or something that we desire or some form of desperation or, or some request. But it, we are driven to prayer in that way. I know it's not all the time, but I would say it's the majority of time for most people we are driven in that way. We are driven to prayer in, in kind of a self-seeking, self-interested way. And Jesus knows this. But notice he doesn't say to the disciples, okay, well, if I'm going to teach you how to pray, first, you need to get your heart right and focus on God. And then you can go to God in prayer. He doesn't say that. No, instead, he teaches them to pray in such a way that will write their heart. Do you see the difference there? He doesn't say to them, okay, well, you're being selfish in in asking to pray or to go to him. He doesn't expect anything else from us as children. What he does to us is he teaches us to pray in such a way that our hearts in prayer would be reoriented around God. Father, there is none like you. Let your name be praised in all the earth. The rest of the prayer all flows from this reorientation of my heart. This attuning my heart to the creator of all things. Who created me, who calls me son, and whose glory spreads to the end of the earth. All the things that I go to God in prayer with, the foundation of it all is the glory of God. Everything, hallowed be your name, means that everything I ask for is God for your namesake. For your glory. That is what it means to pray, hallowed be your name. That is a big prayer. And depending on how you see things, it will either be the hardest thing to pray or the easiest. It's the easiest thing to pray because this this whole life praise is the most natural response to seeing God rightly. Take a look in Isaiah 6, this amazing scene. 
says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Picture this scene of praising God. The angels who have seen everything, they can't even look at him, they cover their eyes. Praising him, singing holy, holy, holy. Why do you think they're there? They're not there because that's the job they drew. Like in the movies where you have a king kind of being carried around and there's always some member of the court whose job is to just go around and either fan them with a big fig leaf or, or feed them grapes or tell them how wonderful they are because that's the job that that, that person drew. It's not that. It's the natural response of the angels being in the presence of God and seeing him for who he is. We've mentioned before, and you see that with Isaiah saying, I am a man unclean. We've mentioned before that every time people even get a a glimpse, even a glimpse of God's glory, either through a blinding light or an angel or a burning bush or a cloud, the response is the same. They fall to their faces. Why? Because they were trained to respect God? Because they knew that's what they were supposed to do? Because they believed that if they did something like that, it would kind of butter God up and then they could ask him for things or put him in a good mood? Of course not. It's because it is the natural response to that kind of greatness. We see a similar scene in Revelation 4. Says the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. I mean, come on, this scene is unreal. The elders tossing their crowns, they hear the praise of God and they just toss their crowns. And this is symbolism. We, whatever, whatever these crowns symbolize, they're throwing down all that they have gained or treasured in praise, in spontaneous praise of God. If we would see God rightly, we would sit and we would marvel at him. We would praise him. His glory is such that Jesus said that even if we were silent, the rocks would still cry out. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
It's the natural response to seeing him rightly. And so if we see him rightly, it is the easiest prayer to pray. But we don't always see him rightly. In fact, we never see him fully. And so it can often be the hardest thing that we pray. Because our hearts aren't always stirred like that. And some of you, if if we're honest, maybe some of you would say, my heart is never been stirred like that. Or maybe you say, I remember a time when it was. I remember when my praise of God was that heartfelt and that abandoned. And now it seems to have left me. We know for many people, we know we are supposed to praise God. And so we just do, but it's going through the motions. And we end up honoring God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. I mean, sometimes we praise God not as a natural response in in awe and wonder, but as a way of just kind of paying him his due. Knowing that I should, before I ask for anything else, I need need to praise him. Like, Like me as a kid, when I would start my conversations with my mom, I'd go up to my mom and say, Mom, you look beautiful today. You are amazing. Have I told you lately how amazing you are as a mom? And what would her response be, do you think? What do you want? Because she knows that though my lips are singing her praises, my heart wants something else. But the problem is is bigger than that. Because when we become satisfied with our lackluster praise of God, our hearts become desensitized, hardened. We find ourselves saying things that our heart doesn't actually believe anymore and we end up okay with it. That's what makes me the most nervous is is it's one thing for us to realize, ah, my heart is not stirred in the way that I see in scripture. It's another thing to become okay with that and to just accept that as normal. Let me give you an example. I have a confession to make. And full disclosure, this may change the way that you view me. But I feel safe because you're in your homes and so it'll take a while for your ire to get back to me. But here's my confession. I don't like fireworks. There, I said it. I feel so much better now. I I find them boring. When Lauren and I were dating, Lauren Lauren does like fireworks. And when Lauren and I were dating, um, because I wanted to impress her, and I took her to go see fireworks on the 4th of July. And while we were there waiting for them, and then they finally started, you know, you wait all that anticipation, and then they start, they start and, and they explode in the sky and do all the things that they do. We were sitting near this young family, and there was a little boy there, maybe two years old, two to three years old. And as soon as they started, like, exploding in the sky, he just looked at them bug-eyed. And he goes, ooh, firework. And it was adorable, Lauren and I both looked at that. We laughed. It, it was sweet. And Lauren would say, like, oh, those are, those are amazing. And so because I was dating Lauren and I wanted to marry her and I didn't want her to be disgusted with me, I said, oh, yeah, they're great. And I wasn't really lying to her. I believed that others saw them as magical. I loved the boy, little boy's reaction to the fireworks. I recognized that they were seen as impressive, but I just didn't see it. 
I mean, it's similar to when I was younger and my dad would always want to go and look at the sunset. My dad loves sunsets. And when I was younger, I would agree with him that they're beautiful. Yeah, oh yeah, look at that. You take pictures of them. Like, oh yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful sunset. But listen, acknowledging that something is beautiful is not the same thing as being gripped by its beauty. Acknowledging that others find something impressive is not the same thing as being gripped in awe. See, I wasn't lying about the sunsets or about the fireworks. I just wasn't gripped by their beauty. And that's how many of us praise God. We hear others praise God. We really enjoy hearing other people praise God. We even maybe find it um, endearing or, or moving to see other people moved by God and being gripped by him. But we are never really moved ourselves. We sing of his greatness, knowing in our minds that he is great. But our praise comes from a place of, I know this is what I'm supposed to say and what I'm supposed to believe. But it's not a response. It's not the response of the angels spontaneously singing, holy, 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 without end. It's not the response of elders just tossing their crowns just in, in response, just praising God. Because they are just gripped by God's majesty, by his beauty. See, God commands our praise because it is the automatic response of seeing him rightly. If your heart overflows with praise, then you are seeing him correctly. And if you are seeing him correctly, it will change you. It will stir your heart. That's why Jesus tells them to start out with this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Spend time considering God, considering his mighty works, the reality of his presence. Marveling at who he is in all of the earth. And then marveling at the fact that you are his child. That you are invited to sit and come to him and sit with him and talk with him. Those who were once enemies are greeted in prayer with the words, Come, son, daughter. That's why it's so amazing that Jesus starts out this way. That's why we're called to praise his name. And if you are stirred in that way, marveling at his majesty, desiring more than anything that his glory be spread to the ends of the earth, you will want the whole world to see the same thing. You will want his name to be hallowed among all creation. It is this natural response. It reveals the condition of our hearts and reorients us around the thing that matters most in all of creation, God's glory. But then the question comes up as, why? Why is it that way? Why, why does God demand that kind of praise? This is a major issue for a lot of people in our culture today. God seems egocentric that he would demand that kind of praise. See, most people, at least in the Western civilized world, believe that if God exists, if there is a God, he exists for me. He exists to help me with my dreams and my plans and live my life. And it can be a very rude awakening when a person really reads the Bible and realizes that it's not about you. It's about God. 
I mean, when you picture, I mean, think about it. If you um, picture God as kind of this kindly God, grandfather who's there to give you advice and encouragement, to pat you on the back and tell you to pursue your dreams, then it's a really rattling picture to, to see that grandfather saying, it's all about me, praise me. But that is what God does. Isaiah 48 says, for my own sake, for my own sake, he repeats it, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. That sounds like something you would expect from a villain in a movie, not the hero. So what gives? I mean, doesn't it seem like it would be more admirable if if God kind of deflected the praise? If in Isaiah he said, okay, okay, stop, stop, I get it. Yep, you're, you know, thank you, I appreciate it, but calm down. Wouldn't that be more endearing? But instead, he insists that we worship him and him alone. Why? Because it's the most loving thing that God can do. In fact, for God to not demand that we praise him alone would be destructive to us. It would be evil. When Robbie and Stacy adopted Haley, they gave their friends, um, which I'm one of their friends, I, I think, they gave their friends strict instructions that if Haley needed something, they needed to be one, the ones to give it to her. So if we were at a potluck and Haley needed food, that, that Robbie and Stacy needed to be the ones to give, it, give the food to her. Or if she would fall down, um, then Robbie and Stacy needed to be the ones who, who picked her up and, and took care of her. And they said it was important to create that bond with her. And, and I, I respected their wishes, but I didn't fully understand. I mean, after all, I thought, wouldn't she know in, in other ways? I mean, she lives in your house. Like, she'll, she'll bond with you in other ways. I mean, do they really have to get all of the attention in all of those situations? But then I started to see why. You know, Haley, and before she was brought home by her mom and dad, she learned that adults were just people that, that kind of would intermittently meet her needs. But ultimately, she was responsible for herself. She could, she could look to someone like a worker in the orphanage or a volunteer or something like that, and they could give her food or they could take care of her in, in very um, immediate ways. But ultimately, she was alone. And for her to experience all the joy of being in a family and being in her family she had to learn that Robbie and Stacy were not just random adults who could meet um, her immediate needs. They were the two adults that God had chosen to love her and to care for her in a way that no other adults would or could. She had to learn that there was a difference between a server at a re- restaurant who brings her food and her dad who brings her food and loves her more than she could possibly imagine. She needed to understand what that relationship was. I mean, imagine them sitting at a restaurant and imagine a server going over to Haley and saying, and bringing her her food and saying, oh, you are adorable. I Look, I can take care of you. I brought you this food. I'm, I'm, someone, I'm someone that you can trust. Do you want to come home with me? That's evil. 
And imagine if Haley then looks to Robbie in that moment who, and Robbie wanting to be humble, just kind of shrugs and says, well, whatever, you know, either way is fine. You can go home with her or go home with us. That should make you nauseous because it's evil. See, it turns out Robbie and Stacy weren't being greedy for Haley's affections. They were being good to her. To share that with anyone else while she was learning to be their daughter would not have been humble. It would have been destructive. It would have been evil. And if it's evil for a stranger to lure a child away from her parents, and it's evil for for imperfect parents to confuse their children about their specific and abounding love, how much more would it be evil of God who is perfect in his ability to care for us, who is abounding in perfect, rock-solid, steadfast love for us to let us stray to any other source? See, we are orphans. Adopted by our Heavenly Father, used to feeling like we are on our own, needing to control anything and everything, needing to look out for ourselves because no one else will, needing to get whatever we can from whomever we can. And you see this a lot. Most people go through life trying anything and everything. I will pray to whomever will listen when I am desperate because what could it hurt? I will appease whatever gods or fates or philosophies to try to get what I want. We see this all over. People in desperate situations on social media saying, send positive thoughts and vibes and and pray to whatever you pray to. It's desperation. But ultimately, there's no one to turn to. We are alone. Dead in our sin. But God... See, then we were adopted by our Heavenly Father. Those of us who have placed our trust in Jesus Christ have been adopted by our Heavenly Father who loved us before we understood what that even meant. And who has set aside aside a firstborn-sized inheritance for all of his children. He has promised to care for us, to work all things together for good for us, to keep us, to sustain us, And these truths are just too magnificent for us to grasp, especially at first. A part of our learning to become sons and daughters is learning that he is the one that we turn to. He is the one who is looking out for us. He is the one who makes all of these things happen. He is the one who has us. He is the one whose promises are there and who are true. And if we give glory to any other thing. We will place our trust in those things as surely as Haley could have placed her trust in a server at a restaurant. See, it is not for God's benefit that he demands glory. It is for our benefit. It is him saying to us over and over and over again, that breath you just drew, That was from me. That relationship that you have that brings you joy, that's from me. 
praise me. That's what he wants us to see. And he would say to you, as you give me praise, you will experience the incredible joy of being loved by me, being loved by your Father. You will know that I do not just give you what you need, I give you what you most desire. That is what our Heavenly Father says to us in prayer. See, the reason why Haley at the beginning would ask anyone and everyone for food is because the most important thing, the biggest thing that she could imagine was having a full belly. But now, now she knows something even greater than that. She knows the love of a mom and dad who would do anything for her. And that is so much better. That is what God wants for us. And the only way we get that is through the renewal of our minds to see him rightly and to praise his name as the source of all things good. And when we share that at all, if he were to share that glory or that praise, to let us wander to any other source, it would be as evil as letting your child go home with a stranger. That's why idolatry is taken so seriously in the Bible. Anything that steals glory from God steals joy from his children. Anything that offers life apart from God delivers death and destruction. And make no mistake, anything that offers life but delivers death is evil. And God is not evil. He is good. So he demands our praise. And we learn little by little, just as Haley has learned little by little. When you, when you look at Haley now, you see a girl who knows who her mom and dad are. And she enjoys being a part of her family. And the more she under, matures, the more she understands. So I don't have to take the same precautions that I used to. I'm allowed to get her food or take care of her if she was you know, hurt or something. I can, I can do those things. But you know what? It's still really fun to talk to her about how great her mom and dad are. It's still my favorite thing to talk to her about because she's still learning the depths of her parents' love for her. And so I'll say to her, God's pretty amazing that he gave you such a great dad, huh? And Haley and Haley Fashion will say, yeah, huh. Hey, in Narnia, did you know there are trees that can talk? And we too, like children, are learning little by little the vast ocean of God's grace and love for us. And a huge way that we learn that is to fix our eyes on him and praise him. And it's really fun to be able to point one another to the father who loves them. That's why I love it when sometimes when people will come up and tell me how meaningful a sermon was I know it's shocking, but that does happen occasionally. But my favorite stories are when they say, well, that illustration you used was exactly what I needed to hear. That was what I was thinking about this morning. I can't believe you said this thing and this is what I've been praying about. And that's my favorite because then I get to say, how great is your father's love for you that he would give you that gift this morning? Because it didn't come from me. I'm not the one who gave that or thought that up for you. Your father thought of that. 
And so it is a joy to be generous in giving our Father praise. That's what it means to say, hallowed be your name. God, I want your name to be glorified to the ends of the earth. I want your name to be glorified after a sermon or after a a worship service or after anything else. I want your name to be glorified because you are the source of all things that are good. And so Jesus doesn't put praise up front because God wants to make sure that we know that he's the boss. It's because he knows it's the most loving thing that he can do. To remind you of who you are talking to, who you are casting your anxieties onto, who you are crying out to, who you are rejoicing with. That you would hear his voice, that you would turn, that you would be healed. Why would you start anywhere else? Why would he let you start anywhere else? So God says, turn to me, remind yourself of my greatness and watch everything else fade away. So this is how Jesus teaches us to come to him in prayer. Let Jesus show you how to pray in such a way that your heart would be gripped by the beauty and glory of God. Just watch what happens as you come to God overwhelmed. Maybe you're coming to God this morning overwhelmed by your circumstances. You remind yourself of how he made the heavens and the earth. Or you come to him feeling utterly alone, remembering, you take time to remember that he has numbered every hair on your head. Or maybe feeling unlovable as your sin is very much in front of you right now and the shame and the guilt of your sin, feeling unlovable, you remember the cross and the incredible love that Jesus demonstrates there. Or you're consumed by your own plans, thinking about all the things that you want to do. You reorient your heart around the desire of seeing God's name be hallowed to the ends of the earth. So church, pray in this way. Let the praise of God change you. It will change how you pray. It will change your desires and therefore it will change your requests and you will be able to truly pray, hallowed be your name. So what I want to do as we close in prayer, I want to read David's song of praise and thanksgiving found in 1 Chronicles 16. And as you listen and read these words, consider them and let them be the cry of your heart. They speak of your father. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Let us respond to him as we sing Inspired by Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. 
His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Amen.